What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Salman Rushdie, Booker Prize winning author and original thinker, to discuss the themes and ideas in his latest collection of nonfiction, Languages of Truth. He spoke to Shahid Abari about everything from Christopher Hitchens to the rise of the new American right. It's a really fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for the book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Hello there, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event. I'm Shahid Abari, critic, academic, and broadcaster. And as Hannah says, I'm your host for this conversation with Sir Salman Rushdie, perhaps one of our most famous living novelists. Novelist. He's the author of 14 novels, including Midnight's Children, for which he won the Booker Prize and the best of the Bookers, Shame, The Satanic Verses, and more recently, the Booker shortlisted Quiz Shot. He's written across different forms, including his memoir, Joseph Anton, and he's co-edited two anthologies, Mirror Work and Best American Short Stories 2008. We're here today, though, to talk about his latest book, Languages of Truth. It's a collection of essays which includes reflections on the artist Cara Walker, the actor Carrie Fisher, and meditations on literature and nationalism. Salman is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, a distinguished writer in residence at New York University, and he was knighted in 2007 for services to literature. Hello, Salman. Hello. How are you? How are you? I'm, I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty well, thank you. Yeah. Pleased to, Great. Be, well, pleased to be doing this. Well, we're delighted to have you. I know you've got a really busy itinerary for this book, so we're delighted to talk with you. Okay, Salman, let's start talking. The first essay in this collection is called Wonder Tales, and it was taken from a lecture that you gave at Emory University. And I, and I want to start with one, the, the idea of Wonder Tales. This is an essay about the stories that you love, the Ramayana, Aflelo Alela, or A Thousand and One Nights, various fairy tales. Wonder Tales also includes things like Greek myths, um, Kafka's Metamorphosis, Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy even shows up. So it seems to me this is a genre that isn't simply about fantasy or fairy tale. Rather, you're describing what sounds like a very specific and perhaps unexpected liter literary tradition. So I, I wonder what wonder tales are and, and what they do for you. Well, the essay actually uh, is a, the essay as published in the book is a combination of two or three different pieces that I wrote over, over time, which, as you, which dealt with, as you mentioned, very different aspects of, of this kind of writing. It begins, I suppose, with the books and stories that I first heard as a child growing up in India 
and then and then learned as adults because these many of these stories are not actually children's stories. You know the, the the stories of the Arabian Nights, which which you get in children's form, are actually very adult stories. That many of them are full of sex and violence for a start, which they tend not to be in the children's versions. But I think it's just I've always felt that to be born into that tradition, you know the the, the tradition of these fabulous tales, which were which broke all the rules of naturalism, uh, but somehow told you. Truth about human beings, you know, and, uh, that was something that never left me. And and um, and as I grew up and began to read in the adult world, I I, I found, if you like, another great tradition. The, the so-called great tradition is very much a, a a realistic one. But I always thought there's this other great tradition of of writing that that breaks rules, if you like, that 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 is more playful. And more highly imagined, and, and that's always had a lot to say to me, and I ended up, I guess, doing that myself. It, it, it's it's very interesting that essay because it it's a genealogy of your writing in one way as well as this unexpected literary tradition. I, I want to pick up on a on a line, picking up on this idea of genealogy. That there's a line in from one of the other essays, an essay called Heraclitus, uh, which begins at least with you thinking about fragmentary traditions. And like many of the essays in this collection, it's an essay that travels elsewhere. It takes you somewhere else. But it takes you to one particular passing observation, which is that, I'm quoting here, the migrant writer like myself can only envy deeply rooted writers like Faulkner or Eudora Welty, Mm -hmm. who take their patch of the earth as a given and mine it for a lifetime. And you you say that, you write it, it seems to me, with some degree of longing, but also clearly with an understanding that your own migrancy or experience of migrancy has enabled something else for you. And I wondered if you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's true that, that if you're lucky to belong very deeply to one place, it can serve you for a lifetime. I mean, you don't even actually have to be there anymore. You know, I mean, Joyce spent his entire life writing about a particular kind of Dublin, even though he spent most of that life not in Dublin. You know, but it was it was still his imaginative home and served him throughout his life. Now, in my case, you know, I've kind of bummed around the planet quite a lot, and. It sometimes feels like a disadvantage. It, fe- it, it feels like uh, not having that kind of solid ground under your feet and, and, and having to, in a way, invent that ground in order for the book to have something to stand on. And then sometimes it feels like a gift because it gives me... If, I always have that sense of not be so much being uprooted as having roots in too many places. Uh, and... Um, and so it gives you that sense of being able to put a story in, in many different places with a sense of belonging to that place. You know, I, mean, I mean, when I wrote, for example, when I wrote Midnight's Children, I would have been horrified if its readers thought of it as a kind of outsider's book, you know, I, I, even though I wrote it in London, in Kentish Town. I wanted it to feel like a book that belonged. You know, and, and, and for me, one of the great joys of that book was that people in India received it in that way. You know, as as a, uh, if I remember a young journalist coming up to me when I was I was in as doing some literary event in India, and, 
And he said, you know, I could have written your book. I know all that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And I took that as a compliment, you know, that he was saying that that the book dealt with a a shared experience. Yes. Yeah. There are, there are, there are some very charming essays in this collection too that I think could only be written by a writer of a certain age reflecting ironically or wryly on the foolish and not so foolish ambitions of youth. These are about your your Garrett days where yeah. you are a young man determined to be a writer, actually literally a writer in a Garrett in literally. your case. Yeah, literally. Um, with with absolutely, I mean, you're doing this with absolutely no guarantee that your wager will be successful. And I wonder now how you feel about the young Salman, now looking back at him at those foolish, but actually not so foolish ambitions. Well, I mean, there's a bit of me that's proud of him, you know, because he kept going. I, I mean, I, I, unlike unlike some of my contemporaries who were very who got off the who got off to a very good to like a flying start you know um uh, uh, pe- people like Ian McEwan and Martin Amis you know were already themselves as writers you know in in their early 20s and and um and I wasn't uh, I stumbled around a lot and, and wrote things that I merciful mercifully never got published I'm very very grateful for that now it took me a while to find my way you know and and uh I'm, I'm just, you know, proud of him for having stuck at it un, un, until he did. Because, you know, I left, I left Cambridge in 1968, and Midnight Children was published in 1981. And uh, in that time, there was only there was one novel that found its way into print, and 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 to put it mildly, didn't do that well. And from the time that the first book Grimes came out to the time of the publication of Midnight Children was almost six years, and and. Um, I don't know that I would do it now. If somebody said, how about spending the next 12 years trying to do something very difficult without any guarantee that you'll be any good at it by the end of that? I would probably not have done that, you know, but I did do it. And and so there we are. It it worked out in the end. I I would say that's very interesting because it's interesting hearing you you reflect on on that, whether you would do it now or advise somebody else to do it. Because I I would say that this book is is actually a very helpful book for aspirant writers because there is experience here. And in fact, in one of the essays, you very specifically overturn the creative writing course instructor's dictum, which is write what you know, and you urge aspirant writers to write what you don't know. Why is that? Well, just because very often what you know isn't very interesting. So <laughs> it's better to go find a good story to tell. But also, I, I remember in starting out, for example, the, the, the family in Midnight's Children in, in, in the beginning was kind of more like my family, but it wasn't alive. You know, on, on the page, it was sort of de- dead. And when I started making it not like people I knew, when I, when I started making them up, they came to life. You know, and and uh, and it taught me that lesson that that yes, of course, books sometimes come out of the personal experience of the writer. Uh, you know, of course that's true. But by the time they're working on the page, they've become something else. You know, and 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 that journey from experience to the text is is what I think. That's the imaginative act. You know, that's the act of creation. That's the act of creation. So I just what what I meant to say to the the students that I said that to was to don't forget to use your imagination 
because that's actually what brings things to life. Yes, I agree. I think my family are terribly boring and I would never put them in a novel. I would <laughs> write about something else. I hope they're not listening. You're, you're, you're also very candid, I think, in these essays, grappling not only with, with the politics of our time, which I'll ask you more about in a moment, but also the, the changing literary currents of our time. And I think you reflect on that quite ruefully, on, on what happens to magic realism in an age of fashionable autofiction, the, the canals, guards and the cusks of our time. L- let me ask you about that, because I, I don't think a writer like you ever goes out of fashion. But how has this age of autofiction made you reflect on magic realism? Well, I mean, I think, you know, like everything else, um, magic realism had a moment and then it became less fashionable. You know, in, I mean, in Latin America, the generation of writers that, that came after the great magic realists, the, you know, absolutely rejected it. The, o- the only thing they didn't want to do was to write like that, you know. So and if, uh, if you had writers like Roberto Bolaño, for example, he was unbelievably rude about Garcia Marquez. I mean, I mean, just shockingly rude in, in a way that reflected more about on him, I think, than on Garcia Marquez. But it was a way of freeing himself from the power of the previous generation. You know, I remember I was quite friendly with Carlos Fuentes and he once made a joke to me where he said, you know, the, the, the influence of Garcia Marquez is so great in Latin America that people now feel they can't use the word solitude. Because really? because it feels like a reference. And he said, I'm really afraid that pretty soon we won't be able to use the phrase 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and people react against that, you know. And I think in, in my own case, something of that sort happened. You know, there was a moment certainly in Indian writing when Midnight's Children was, was influential, you know. Um, and... And then it became negatively influential. People wanted to do the opposite. They didn't want to do that anymore. You know? so, so these things are, are cycles. You know? and, and, uh, and as you said earlier, I mean, some of my books are, I don't, wouldn't consider to be in that, uh, in that. I mean, a novel like Shalimar the Clown feels much more realistic to me than and, and The Golden House also feels much more realist than, than fantasist. You know? So... I mean, my view, the way I've always thought about it is it, it's as if you, if when you're a composer, you have in your mind the orchestra, you know, and, and, and sometimes you can write for this instrument and sometimes you can write for another instrument. But what's nice and exciting is to have the orchestra available to you so, so, that, so that it can fulfill whatever music is in your head, you know. So I think of writing as the same way, that, that depending on what is the story I'm trying to tell, I find, if you like, the instruments to use to tell that story. Yes, and a, and a good writer, of course, tests the, the limits of a, a genre or a form like magic realism and gives it new dimension. I, in, in, in one of the essays, you're very clear that magic realism is not simply fantasy, it's not escapism, it's not whimsy. No. And it, it does strike me that in your hands it's... Particularly, I was thinking about the Golden House, actually, that it, it has social or moral purpose. And I, I, I wonder if that is, if the for, if that mode of writing, and I know, of course, you've written in so many different modes of writing, often at the same time. But I wonder, you know, magic realism is the form that you, you've become so profoundly in t- known for or connected to. Mm. I wonder how, 
how it sits with you as a genre and because curiously it seems to me it's also a, a it's a state of a state of the nation genre for you too it it serves all purposes well you see here's one thing i think is that it's something about not belonging to a dominant white culture uh if you do it's very easy to to feel that the world is simply given so the world is simply so it's like this and and you just have it given to you and you write about it i think if you something also i think to do with with being a migrant writer that the world feels much more provisional you know and 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 contested you know one man's ceiling is another man's floor you know and 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 you feel that there is an argument about the real that that it's it's not simply given you know and when you get into that state of mind which i often have been you can't play by the rules of realism because the the because the rules of the realist novel assume that between the writer and the reader there's an agreement about the nature of the real you know um and when that agreement isn't there you have to play other games you know and and uh, and so i i think i use the term surrealism more than magic realism because i find that magic realism really belongs to those latin americans you know and but i think you know i mean in that sense kafka is a magic realist you know nikolai gogol mikhail bulgakov are magic realists the french surrealists were magic realists writers in america the fabulists like thomas pynchon and so on were magic realists so this kind of writing which does not conform to the rules of of realism but has the purpose of telling you something about the real world you know is that's what attracts me and and uh as a reader you know and 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 also clearly attracts me as a writer can we talk about the the essay as a form uh, these essays have been gathered from all sorts of sources over the course of 17 years some are honorary lectures there are articles opinion pieces literary criticism and i i i started to wonder reading through them whether you where it, do if you think of yourself now as an accidental essayist and what what it is that the form facilitates for you well i don't know about accidental i mean i think i wrote them on purpose <laughs> um, uh, and i've done i just I mean, mean that your primary job is to be a novelist of yes, course yes i mean i do i i do think that that's the primary job i've always thought of myself as a as a fiction writer first but over the course of this I mean, there are one or two people who've been reviewing this book, telling me that I'm old and past it. So, so, but over the course of this, how rude! Uh, yeah, it sort of is rude. You know, but <laughs> this is the trouble with the young; they are rude. Um, <laughs> um, but what I what I mean is that there's there's a body of work that's built up, which is which is not fictional, and some of that is because books are very slow to write, you know, and. and um, and the world moves very fast and so sometimes if you want to say something a a, a book is a, a book is not an fiction a novel is not the best way to say it you know because it just takes yeah. too long so one of the reasons for moving into non-fiction is is that kind of desire for immediacy and sometimes i mean, like when when i've just been writing about writers it's just it's obviously the natural way to do it you know if some of these pieces came in response to requests to write about writers i was a couple of years ago was the 50th anniversary of the publication of slaughterhouse 5 and so i was asked to write about that and and about kurt vonnegut uh, who i knew a little bit 
so that piece came out of that. And then I was actually, the last time I had any contact with Philip Roth was when he asked me to deliver what was called the Philip Roth Lecture. What, what, what's happened is that Newark, New Jersey, which is where he was originally from, uh, the, the library there has set up an annual Philip Roth Lecture in his name. And the first one was given by Zadie Smith, I think, and the, 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 the second by the biographer Robert Caro, and then and then Roth asked me to deliver the third one. And I thought, well, you know, Philip Roth asked you to deliver the Philip Roth lecture. You know, the correct answer to that is yes. yes. Uh, and then he died. And so it ended up being much more a lecture about him than about kind of America, which is what it was originally supposed to be about. So, you know, so the essays came about in these different ways. But then when I thought, okay, there's maybe enough here for a book. And I started selecting so which ones do I put in? Which ones do I leave out? And then I felt that everything needed rewriting because the way in which you speak, the way in which you write sentences to be spoken is not necessarily the way in which you write sentences to be read. You know, so what, what works in oral delivery doesn't always work on the page. So, so I had to go through it all and, um, and revise. So in a way, they're all new. Even if they're really, even if they're old. Uh, just to pick up on the essayists, I uh, reading you, I wondered who who are the essayists that you admire? Hmm. Hazlitt, you know Hazlitt a lot. I remember being introduced to Hazlitt by Michael Foote of all people, uh, who was a huge Hazlitt fan, and um, he uh, I was invited to dinner at his house. And he gave me an edition of Hazlitt, which I still a surprised possession. But yeah, so so that's one essayist. I mean, I as a as a polemicist, I of course admired Christopher Hitchens a great deal. But he, as well as being a brilliant polemicist, he was actually a wonderful literary scholar. You know, and and uh, I mean I think one of the very last things he wrote when he was really not at all well was about G.K. Chesterton. And and uh, you wouldn't think of Christopher Hitchens as being a huge Chesterton fan, but he but he was and knew knew. So he was yeah. I mean Christopher, who was exclusively a nonfiction person, who, who never crossed the line between nonfiction and fiction, turned nonfiction into a kind of art form. Yeah, and and literary criticism too. I think that this selection of essays is a real insight into your tastes as well as the writing that has formed you. And I and I I wondered what what a a number of these pieces are 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 literary critical pieces Mm. about writers that you admire: Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Philip Roth, you mentioned, but also Cervantes. Are you are you a reader of literary criticism? And and what do you look Mm. for in good literary criticism? No, I'm not. Really, I mean, the simple answer is no. I'm not really. <laughs> um, I, I like reading books, not books about books. He says. Yeah, he I says, having just pub- having just published <laughs> a book which is a book about books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also the other thing is that because I have two previous books of of nonfiction, there are, there are, there are quite a lot yes. of there are quite a lot of writers who are not written about in this book because I've written about them before. You know, and and um, yeah, there's one piece that I sort of wish. I had included, which is that I was very lucky quite a long time ago to be asked to interview Toni Morrison on the BBC when she had just published her novel Jazz. And we had this extraordinary 
well, I mean, talking to Toni Morrison, you don't have to say very much because she sort of take, took over, you know. And I really loved that conversation. But when I looked at the transcript of it, it was all, it was almost all her, not me. <laughs> and so I thought I can't put that in the book because it's like because it's not it's not her book, you know. It's my I can't and I can't ask her for permission anymore. Uh, so that's not there. But but that was one of my really most memorable literary encounters because you know I knew Toni Morrison a little bit privately, but 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 you know when you sort of like meet a writer for dinner or something, you end up not having the serious conversation about their work. You know, you, you, you talk about anything else. You know? um, and this gave me an opportunity to ask her a lot that I actually wanted to ask her uh, and had always wanted to ask her. So, yeah, it was a great moment. But, yes, it's not in the book. Are there other writers that you wish that you could have spoken to that... Yes. Who you would like to have staged conversations with? Well, I mean, there are writers I never met that I would like very much like to have met. You know, I never met Saul Bellow. I would I would like to have met him. Mm. I never met Garcia Marquez, and and I would have liked. Although I had, a, I once had a very memorable phone conversation with him, and and, and a writer that who was incredibly generous to me from the very beginning was Ursula K. Le Guin. And remained a very generous reader of my work all the way through her life. And I met her very briefly when I was doing a literary event in, in Seattle. And, and she came to the event in order to say hello. You know? and, and I would really have loved to have spent really a lot more time with her. Because first of all, she was very nice to me. But secondly, I really admired her work. I just want to go back and wheel back a bit to this idea that you had a long conversation with Toni Morrison where she did most of the, t- the talking. I'm not sure I believe that. But I, I want to know what you d- would talk about. What did you talk about? Can you recall? Well, yeah, well, I, I, well, well, one of the things we talked about was, was the novel Jazz. And, and, and I said to her, I said, you know, okay, so this novel's called Jazz. Jazz is a form which relies a great deal on improvisation. And, and is that a technique that you used in writing? Is there any kind of jazz in the, in the writing of the book? You know, and, um, and she said, well, I want to make you feel that I did that, which was cheating a little bit. But, but later on, she did admit that she, she did something which has also happened to me in my writing, which is as she has got older in her, had written more and more books, she was more confident of her ability to simply discover the book rather than plan the whole thing in advance. You know, uh, and, uh, and I think that's happened to, to me as well, that, that, you know, when I started out, I needed lots of architecture. You know, I, I needed to really have the, the frame, the skeleton of the book quite well worked out before, mm. before I could start putting flesh on it. And, and lately, I mean, yes, of course I have a structure, you know, but, but I leave myself more space to see what happens you know, and, yes. uh, and to, to discover the book rather than simply execute a plan that I've already made. Is it more exciting, yeah, this, yeah. this new it's, method? It's, yeah. yeah, it's more dangerous too, and you waste stuff because you go down blind alleys, you know, and, and, yes. and, and, and then, you, then you, at a certain point you think, you know, I, I don't want to be here. I shouldn't be here. I should be somewhere else. And you have to back up and find another direction. I mean, one of the writers who does this told me that he did this all the time was Michael Ondaatje. You know that that he really? that he that he uses it really as his way of writing, and and so you know his books take eight years to write, and when they come out, they're two hundred and thirty pages long. 
And, and, yeah. and, you, and you think, what have you been doing? <laughs> and, <laughs> and this is what he's been doing. He's been literally discovering the book sentence by sentence. Yeah. Well, you do say in, in the essay collection, you talk about abandoned drafts, these sort of spectres at the beginning. Does that still happen? Are there still discarded well, drafts at the bottom of filing cabinets? You know, it, it happened a bit at the very beginning of my writing. And then for a very long time, it didn't happen at all. I mean, that I, I think you just get better at knowing this is the project I want to write. And, and, and you don't, you don't go, you don't, you don't start unless you know you're going to go on. You know? But it happened to me twice in the year of the pandemic, you know, that's uh, right. that, uh, when I think like many people, you know, we were all kind of off balance, you know, and, and um, I started two different things and, and wrote quite a lot. I mean, wrote 60, 70 pages, of, you know, of, of each and then thought these are awful <laughs> and, and put them away and <laughs> I haven't looked at them since. Uh, so it took me a lot. It's, and I really was, I thought this is really like what used to happen to me when I was 20. And, and I wasn't expecting it to happen again. And I, I do think it had something to do with, you know, with that strange state of mind we, we've all been in in the last year and a half. Yes. Yeah. Let's turn to the audience for a moment. I still have a dozen questions to ask you, Salman, so I might steal a few more in. Okay. But let, let me at least try to be a gracious host and include <laughs> our audience. They've asked lots of brilliant questions, actually. All right. So this is a question about, okay, do, do you ever embark on experiences in life which are uncomfortable, but you think ultimately they will help you as a writer, inspire you? I'm not sure what they're. I mean, well, not is it about bungee jumping, but yeah, or, no, or not <laughs> not deliberately. I mean, maybe the only time that I did do that was was when I was invited to to Nicaragua in the middle 1980s, at the time of the Contra War, and and what had happened to me was I was writing a book which was difficult for other reasons at the time, uh, which was the Satanic Verses, and I was a bit stuck. And I thought, well, maybe I just need to leave it alone for a bit and go and see some people who are having real problems. And so I went to Nicaragua as the guest of the Writers' Union just to look around, and I assumed I might write something. And I got obsessed by it. I mean, it, 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 mm. just, it, it just took me over. And, and when I came back, I ended up writing a short reportage book about it. That was, I mean, I went on purpose in order to, find, in order to see if there was something to write. And and it was, you know, it was alarming. I mean, there were places where I was really quite near the front line, and it's the only time in my life I've ever been that kind of reporter. You know, I remember being on a road in the, in the back of a pickup truck with some Sandinista soldiers, and they told me that this particular road had been mined a week before, and and a, a, a bus full of schoolchildren had been blown up and, and killed. And oh my I, goodness! And I said, "What this road?" And they said, yeah, this road. And I, oh. and I said, well, is there some way of knowing if the road's being mined? And they said, yes, there's a really loud bang. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> goodness. Yeah. But anyway, so that, there were moments yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really good question. And I mocked it, but you gave a, a really wonderfully serious answer there, too. The next question is a little bit dizzyingly vertiginous. It's like a Magritte painting. Uh. Um, you write about the paradox of the self and the paradox of literature. What is the paradox of being Salman Rushdie? Uh, I don't feel paradoxical. 
I don't feel like a contradiction in terms. Is Look, that something? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, don't, I can't answer the question. I think maybe one of the problems is when, when one of the things I wrote about in, in that essay called Autobiography in the Novel is how it used to be the case that a book could be very famous while the writer was able to remain relatively private. You know, so, right. so that in some of the most famous books of the 18th century, Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels, Tristram Shandy, the author's name does not appear on the title page. You know? right. And Gulliver's Travels pretends it's been written by Gulliver, and Robinson Crusoe pretends it's been written by Robinson Crusoe. You know, And yeah. I kind of love that. I like that idea that you can send your book out to become famous, and you can stay home being private. And I think a, a, a thing, a problem that happens when you become very well known as a writer is that it, it affects the way in which you are read, you know, and, and not always in a good way. And if that's a paradox, then that, that is, that, you know, on the one hand, yes, I'm, you know, I'm very pleased that my books have done well and that, I, that people know who I am as a writer. But there's also a bit of me that would like the, would like the first part of that sentence to be true. Uh, right. that, the, that the books should be out there well-known, but that I could, you know, not be. I would much prefer that. Yes. That, there's a certain sadness to that, isn't there, as well, that, that circumstances in your career have made that so. Yeah, I mean, um, everybody's got a point of view, you know, and and 99% of the people who have a point of view have never met me. So, yeah. so it's not not a particularly well informed point of view, let's say. Yeah. But it but it does get in the way. It does get in the way, and um, yeah. sometimes it has a funny side to it. I mean, I remember walking down a street in New York, and a, an Indian gentleman came up to me and asked me if I was me, and and I said I was me, and <laughs> and, and he said, I just want to tell you that V.S. Naipaul is 10 times as good a writer as you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so I said, well, okay, then you should be pleased because now you've told me. And he said, <laughs> he said yes, I just wanted you to know that he walked off. <laughs> good luck to that man. Um, this is, a, this is a, a great question, but a big one. What's your view on the decolonization of English literature? The decolonization of English literature. Oh, that's yeah. How long have you got? I mean, that's a very, yeah. that's a huge question. But I do think one of the pleasures of the English language is how how it can be molded to express realities which are other than the realities of 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 England. You know, um, and many people have done this. Uh, the Irish, you know, the Irish have famously remodeled English yes. in their own image. And, 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 you know, Caribbean English is different. And America has many different Englishes, some of them black, some of them white, some of them northern, some of them southern. And, yeah, and, and in, in India and Pakistan, there also, there's a local, there's a, there are local versions of English. So I think English, and that's, I mean, on the one hand, Eng yes, English is the world language, etc., but on the other hand, it doesn't belong to the English anymore. Yes. You know, it, it, it belongs to all of us. You know? And yeah, I like that about it. And I also do think that, well, I'm biased because, so, because of my own ethnicity, but I think some of the most interesting work being done in English right now is being done by 
by writers who don't belong to the classical English tradition. You know, so so I mean, in in America right now, for example, I think African American writers are really reinventing American literature. You know, in in all different forms. You know, in poetry, Tracy K. Smith and Natasha Trethewey. You know, in 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 theater, Suzanne Laurie Parks. In in the novel. Uh, writers like like Jasmine Ward and Colson Whitehead, you know, the, the the they become really at the center of literature. And the other thing that's I think very interesting is the way in which immigrant writers or the children of recent immigrants have also taken over and started reinventing literature. So you have you know Korean writers like you know Korean American writers like Min Jin Lee, for example and Jhumpa Lahiri from South Asia, or Junot Diaz from the Caribbean, or Viet Thanh Nguyen from Vietnam. And, and, yes. and so, so English literature, or in this case, American literature, is being turned into something else, you know, by, by the interventions of these artists. You know? and, and I love that. I mean, I, I think that's, that's very enriching. Yes, that's so exciting, isn't it? Mm. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. The, the next question, I think you might, you might like answering this. Uh, I think, I hope you do. How much do you think about Christopher Hitchens and what would he have made of the world today? Uh, man. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's getting to be a while, you know. I mean, this year, the end of this year, it's going to be 10 years since he died. Uh, it feels like yesterday. You know, but it's actually going to be. And I mean, you know, he was a very dear friend, and 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 we disagreed fiercely about many things, not just about the Iraq War, but also about, for example, the novels of Paul Scott, which he thought were great, and I didn't think so. And very difficult person to disagree with Christopher because you would always lose the argument. Like even if, <laughs> e- like even if you were right, you would lose the argument. <laughs> so, so yeah, and I, and I have wondered about about how he would deal with the present because, you know, Christopher absolutely detested the Clintons, he pathologically right. pathologically hated Bill and Hillary Clinton, and so what would he have made of an election in which Hillary Clinton's running against Donald Trump? Yeah, I, I'm slightly scared to know the answer to that question. You know, um, uh, yeah. and, and we will we won't know the answer. I mean, I would hope that he that he would not find himself wearing a red hat. 
Yeah. I'm going to interrupt our audience questions. There are some great questions coming in. I'm going to come back to them. But I want to, to pick up, well, well, maybe, you know, I don't know if on Twitter, if you've been following the foray about Philip Roth. And I, I just wanted to pick up on that, about the dual contra- controversy at the moment, both about the his, his treatment of, of women and allegations that have now been leveled at, at one of his new biographers. Uh, and I don't mean to ask you about those allegations mm. in themselves. I think that's beyond our remit. But I do want to use this as a way to ask you about what is sometimes called cancel culture, Mm. because it strikes me as as someone who has been cancelled in one way before cancel culture existed as we know it. I mean, mean the fatwa, of course. Mm. I wonder what you make of this new iteration, which is... Which is, well, is, is loaded differently to what happened to you with a different moral valence. But, but it does strike me that you're in a peculiarly unique position to, to reflect on this well, phenomenon. Well, also, the, the, the problem is the, there's a problem with the phrase because it's, it's used differently by people on the right and people on the left, you know, and, yes. and, and uh, means different things depending which side of the spectrum you're on. You know? So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a phrase that maybe we should use other, other descriptions. But, I mean, there's, some some of it, I think it's perfectly reasonable that people should be held to account for terrible things that they say and do. You know, I, I, I really, I don't see why they shouldn't be. You know, and 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 the fact is that we have a younger generation now which is much less willing to let people get away with stuff. And there's a lot of that that I don't think is a problem at all, and, and maybe desirable. What, what I think is difficult is when you try to silence opinion with which you don't agree. And because it's, the, the, in the question of free expression, it's, it's not difficult to grant or to agree to the free expression of people that you agree with or, or that you are indifferent to. You know, it, it's when somebody says something you really don't like that you discover if you believe in free speech or not. You know? mm. and, and also, I think if you, I mean, I've spent a certain amount of time like looking at the history of free expression and uh, and its 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 beginnings and and sometimes its suppression, what you find is almost a hundred percent of the time that when authoritarian rulers try to limit speech, it is always the speech of minorities that is limited first, you know, always. And minorities, I, I, I mean, I know women are not a minority, but just to include them in that group. You know. So I think if, for virtuous reasons, you decide that certain kinds of speech should be silenced, it's kind of a slippery slope, you know, because, because historically, that kind of methodology has always been used against exactly the people you're trying to defend. You know. So, yeah, I mean, so I, I, I tend not to use the phrase because, because, as I say, the phrase yes. means different things. You either sound yeah. you either sound like a, a right winger or you sound like a left winger, but but maybe neither of those things would be appropriate. I I agree, and it's very hard to ask the question without yeah. seeming to be partisan. I think the term itself is is loaded. But just hearing you talk about freedom of expression reminds me that the activities of Penn Penn International has been a very important part of your your writing yes. life. Where are we now with with writers and freedom of expression, do you think? Do you think we're in a better place? We're in a very difficult place. And I think this is one of the reasons why I don't get too involved with things like the cancel culture argument, because there are writers in much, much worse trouble than that. You know, I mean, the world is a dangerous place for for writers and, and not just novelists and poets, but journalists too. You know, it's it's 
more journalists are killed a year now than than ever used to be the case. You know, journalists have become targets and, yeah. uh, in many parts of the world. And I think what Penn does to to protect to try and protect writers in trouble around the world is is enormously important. You know, and and what, one of the things that is worth mentioning is how effective they are because we discovered quite a long time ago that one of the things about authoritarians is not only that they want to be powerful, they also want to be loved. They want people to like them. And so if you draw attention to a writer that they're persecuting or jailing or torturing, it makes them look bad. And sometimes it's easier for them to release the writer than to have the the, the bad publicity. You know, and and a lot of writers that Penn has taken up the cases of, you know, have have been you know, have been freed and have been able to resume a, a kind of life. So it's so it's not just a kind of virtue signaling operation. I mean, it, it is actually politically effective. And, yes. and I remember how much I valued the support of writers through Penn and other groups when, when I needed it. And so I felt when I no longer needed it that I wanted to Put back some of that effort into the support of, of others who did need it. So, so yeah, it's important. Yes, thank you for that answer. There's a question here. I think this is a very interesting question. Do you think writing is too democratized today with self-publishing and online writing? Do you ever find it necessary to lower your writing standard to a lowest common denominator? I mean, those are two questions, but yeah. perhaps a, a thought on um, self-publishing and online writing. I don't know. I mean. Uh... I, I, I'm not very familiar with with self-publishing on the internet. You know, I mean, I know there's a lot of it about, so I, I can't really speak to it. In theory, I have no real problem with it. You know, it, it, I think one of the things about the internet is that is that it does make things like that possible, and why not? You know, but but um, whether the standards are what they should be, I mean, I really I can't say because I don't, I've not studied it. As far as me, no, I mean, look. I've just, I've got to this point in my life and this is what I do, you know, and I'm, yeah. and I'm not going to do, do things another way. I'm not, you know, I'm not really, I mean, I know how to use the internet, but I'm not really the internet generation, you know, and, and, what, yeah. and what I feel is that every time there is a new technology, it makes possible new art forms. Um, and, and I don't think we've quite got there with the internet. I mean, I think visual artists have begun to use computers to, to make very interesting art. And filmmakers have begun to use the possibilities of the computer and of streaming and so on to, to make interesting work. I'm not sure that literature has found out what is what is its mutation that will be effective in the new form. Yes. You know, so I think we're still, and it won't be, I can tell you one thing, it will not be written by me. <laughs> it'll be written by somebody who's like 18. So, but I just wonder, just reflecting on your question, your answer earlier about the burden of being Salman Rushdie, writing novels and being Salman Rushdie, would you ever be tempted to write, publish anonymously? Have you ever published anonymously? No, I haven't. Salman? I haven't. I mean, I, uh, I, I mean, one of the things that, that I, one, one of the reasons I wrote the memoir Joseph Anton was that there was a period where I was forced to adopt a pseudonym. And and I I um, and I and I really didn't like it, you know. So yes. so no, I don't think so. Also, I mean, I remember, you know, I was friendly with Doris Lessing, and and right. there was a point where she got sick of being Doris Lessing, yeah. 
and, and, and she actually did write uh, an anonymous novel. And she sent it out to publishers, including her publishers, without telling them it was her. And um, the ones who were her oldest publishers completely got, the, got it immediately. Called, right. uh, called her up and said, Doris, who are you trying to kid? <laughs> and so I think that's the thing, that if, if you are a writer with, with, a, with a voice, then it's very hard to disguise the voice because, mm-hmm. the, because the voice has something to do with, with who you are. You know, and and so Doris, even though she tried really hard not to be Doris, ended up being Doris, even if it was yes. different. And actually, when the book came, when that book came out, because they didn't tell the public, you know, the publishers knew, but they didn't tell the public. When the book came out, there were one or two reviews which said, "Oh, it reads like a bad Doris Lessing novel." <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that's devastating. <laughs> which I think is not the not the response she was hoping for. No. Uh, so yeah, no, I, a- I don't think so. No, not tempted to to write pseudonymously. Um, There's a a really important question here, and I think you have something to say to it. Could Mr. Rushdie say something about the way in which Mr. Modi seeks to limit free speech in India today? Well, yeah, I mean, well, it's it's pretty scary. Uh, I mean, just even like yesterday and today, there there have been moments where the police arrived at the offices of, of Indian Twitter, in, oh God. in order to threaten them, you know, uh, people are being asked, people, social media are being asked to take down posts which are critical of the Indian government. And in some cases, things like Facebook have, have, have given in to that pressure. You know, so, so there is a constant pressure from the administration to limit criticism you know, uh, and uh, to suppress criticism. Let's not beat about the bush. There are Writers and journalists who have felt in some considerable physical danger themselves as well. So, and of course, there are, apart from the government itself, there are these, what you might call freelance gangs of thugs roaming around who seek to impose their kind of Hindu extremism, you know, on people who they feel are dis- dissenting from that. A lot of students have been very badly treated. And, and, uh, and arrested and jailed for doing no more than protesting against this or that government policy. You know, so it's very sad because India was India rightly took great pride in calling itself the world's largest democracy, and and took pride in the fact that while it's easier for democracy to take root in a wealthy country, it's actually quite difficult in a poor country where vulnerabilities are greater of, of you know the of emergence of the emergence of things like military coups and so on which of course did happen a lot in pakistan right next door so india was always very proud of being a true democracy and in a true democracy it's not only the the majority that gets to speak yes in in a true majority even if you are in the minority and you lose the election, you shouldn't feel afraid to say what you have to say. And in India now, the more and more that people do sometimes feel afraid. You know, and and yeah. I know that in the you know one of these bodies, international bodies that rates democracies, just downgraded India from being a democracy to being to, to a kind of question mark. You know, and and that's to somebody of my generation. You know, the, mine is the generation. Of freedom, you know that my, mine was the generation that grew up in the immediate aftermath of, of independence, and 
we felt in, in a way like the possessors of independence, the first generation for 200 years to not be under some kind of colonial rule. And it feels very sad to feel, to see that freedom eroding. Yes. Thank you for that answer. One last question from me. Thank you to our audience for these amazing questions. And I'm sorry if we haven't been able to get to all of them. I've done my best. But the last thing I wanted to ask you was about the fact that these essays span the year 2003 to 2020, mm. 17 years. And it, it strikes me that this is a, a very distinct era or period of your 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 life. And you've had very distinct moments of your life, of course, not least those under the fatwa, but and perhaps we could think about before the fatwa and after the, the fatwa. Mm. But this particular period, I was thinking about Frank Commode's um, work on late style. Mm. And I wonder how you would characterise this period huh. of your life, as well as your literature, Salman Rushdie's late style. <laughs> how do you describe it? Well, it's a whole new millennium, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's a, <laughs> uh, this, this is like, the, I mean, all these are 21st century pieces, you know, and and uh, and the the two collections that came out before were very much 20th century pieces, and and for a long time I felt that felt in a way more belonging to the 20th century than to the 21st, you know, and but I don't think that's true anymore. I mean now I, now I think uh, I seem to manage to put down roots in the present moment. And, yes. and so I think of this as a book in which I've just been trying to come to terms with the world as it is now rather than the world that I knew before. Because I do think it has changed dramatically. You know, I, I, think, I think we live in a time of radical transformation. I mean, if I was just thinking sometimes if I were to show my father a cell phone, he wouldn't be able, yes. to, he wouldn't be able to believe that it existed. I mean, and, and of course, it's it's not very long since we didn't have Google. You know, I, I, in in the last novel, I, I divided the the world into before Google and after Google, you know, and that really is a colossal change. You know, the, just in, in terms of the way in which we can receive, access, and process information. And I'm very interested in that subject of information, and uh, because I sometimes think that now we have a hundred ways to receive information, and maybe we know less than we used to uh, yes. because of the distortions that are also possible. And just in this question of the, you know, of the, vac of the vaccination question, that the, the amount of garbage being proposed on the internet gets in the way of people trying to tell the truth. You know? so, so there are problems as well as opportunities there. But yeah, I think what I would say about this, this late period is just is my attempt to, you know, as a kind of dinosaur, to try and live in the to try and live in the post dinosaur world. Well, I, I'm hoping for an even later uh, Salman Rushdie style, a, a great flourishing in an even later style. Thank you so much, Salman. It's invigorating to talk to you as ever, and thank you to the audience for these excellent questions. And I'm sorry if I didn't manage to get to them. And thank you to the Intelligence Squared team who've been working madly to keep events going through the pandemic. And I think they'll be hosting events in person again very soon, which is very exciting. Thank you, Salman. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This 
is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.